makes me so angry is rich people can go buy bottled water, you know. This is what we feed to our people, and, and the bottling companies get the good stuff for nothing. How's that? All right. They don't want this shit. They don't want the shallow stuff. It's only just recently that Antarctica has been included in our predictions of sea level rise. The evidence we're getting is that we have severely underestimated the contribution of the Antarctic ice sheet to future sea level rise. Think about first, what is litigation about these climate change hazards all about? And what's it going to look like? And it's, of course, it's going to be basic. Someone's going to suffer some damage and they're going to look around for someone to blame. Kia ora, I'm Teresa Cowie and this is Water. A series about Aotearoa's water and some of the researchers who are dedicating their lives to understanding and protecting it. I'll find out what drives them and how they cope with researching the difficult, sometimes unpopular questions as they spend their days figuring out the possibilities for what can at times seem like a near apocalyptic future for our planet and its life force, water. In this podcast, I'm catching up with Professor Catherine Irons, an environmental law researcher with Victoria University of Wellington's Law School, to find out what it means to give human rights to rivers. It's not just an issue of water take or discharge. Seeing it as something that needs to be respected as a whole and looked after as an ecosystem, as a you know life giving for all of the various creatures that depend upon it, you know, including ourselves. And why she teaches our future decision makers about being prepared to protest. I already teach people about protest in class because I do think basically we have to throw a spoke in the wheels of the juggernaut. I have been teaching law actually since 1992, which of course is far too long. To be doing the same thing, but I still absolutely love doing it. And there's so many bits of the job that I love doing that I'm still doing it. So what does a law professor do? Basically, as I teach students how to argue about the meaning of words... Um, which is what a lot of lawyers do, um, is you might take a word, you know, whether it's in the tax statute or social welfare or parking tickets or anything else, anything it is that you want to look at, you look at the rule and you go, oh, I don't think I fit within that word. I want to argue about that word. So we teach students how to do it properly. Catherine grew up in a house full of arguments. Not the rip-roaring, have a massive Barney over whose turn it is to do the dishes kind. Something a little more considered. Her dad was a philosophy lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington, and she grew up enjoying the sport of debate. A self-confessed goody-good, she won all the prizes at school, and could have chosen almost any course at university. But the law called. I just loved law. I, there's something about the skills of arguing and philosophy very similar 
argument. And I grew up with arguing with my dad. I mean, but all of the friends would come around, right? In fact, as PhD students and a whole bunch of people, they'd sit, sit around. Well, that, we had one of the early open plan kitchen dinings, which is interesting. They had an extension of, onto the house, and we had this big dining room, and there was a fireplace, and the kitchen was right there, you know, all with a, just a bench, just like nowadays. And so this was the 70s. And they all sit around on... Uh, sit around this table. Sometimes they'd play mahjong, but they'd have dinner or whatever. And but the, and, and I would sit just on the side by the fireplace, but on the little couch, and listen. All right, and they would just be talking and but arguing about things. It was like but trying to persuade people to have a political point of view. You know, it's like arguing about politics. And um, it was just interesting watching. Um, like as a philosopher, or my dad would say, it was like, well, how about this? And someone would say. No, 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 no. Well, here, well, what about this? And then the answer will be no. But there's no, what about this? And then, you know, no for all these reasons. And finally it's like, oh, that's a good reason. And then you'd be persuaded. So it, was, it, would, it would be a lot of that testing of ideas. And I was used to that. Despite growing up as the daughter of a university lecturer in the buttoned-up Wellington suburb of Karori, by 1970s New Zealand standards, Catherine had a pretty weird upbringing but one that made her think beyond her own picket fence. And she carries that today by trying to take her research and the message about water and the environment outside the wood-panelled walls of her law school office. I was a real social justice (laughs) nut. Um, If you want to go back and look at sort of my family upbringing, I think a lot of people would say, like, my parents were hippies, maybe the closest you could get to being hippies if you had a job. (laughs) <laughs> my father taught uh, philosophy at university, had bare feet and had long hair and a leather headband. And my mum had an afro. <laughs> and we had holidays in communes in the Coromandel with friends and we, I think everyone else ran around naked. Her parents had her when they were teenagers. They were both still at university, but then her mum dropped out to have kids and ended up working odd jobs at the supermarket and the local service station, and there was never much money. It was a very um, odd upbringing for Karoriites, and my father was the head of Foster Care Federation, the president of Foster Care Federation, and um, with Amnesty International, it was a group of friends, and we used to have meetings at home and all that kind of stuff. So I did definitely grow up in a real social justice household. When I was young, I was a member of Ngāti Pōniki. I was the only white kid to go on tour, <laughs> I swear, um, and sometimes left off the stage because of that. Um, and um, for years, in fact, we had foster children. We had a Māori foster um, sister for many years. Um, so we grew up in a household where social justice was key. And anyway, sorry. So how, how, do you think you were, um, <laughs> how do you think growing up in, in um, Karori and uh, with your happy parents <laughs> might have led you to to work in this type of law? Um, you're looking back on it, you can definitely see that what I grew up with was maybe a set of values. I'm definitely a questioner. I do remember my father saying, one thing I remember my father saying is about wealth, right, and, so, and making money. And uh, a comment that so many of the people who were rich had done it by screwing somebody. And so you sort of thought, well, therefore, that you don't, that's the last thing you want to be is rich, you know, because that means you must have screwed somebody over. And those words affected the direction she decided to take her law career. 
still keeping up that goody-good image from school, she won most of the prizes at law school too, including the one for corporate law. But she didn't take up the graduate scheme. Instead, she went into the public service. But that failed to excite her too, so she changed to university teaching. The first environmental topic around water that I remember, you know, this was in the 70s in the Save Manapuri, and the Think Big projects that Muldoon proposed, a lot of them were in relation to dams, um, damming whole communities and ecosystems, um, and then dumping fresh water into the sea for one of the tail races for one of the dams, and that was huge. Um, we didn't think we were running out of water then, so that wasn't an issue. But there were also a lot of Maori concerns in relation to water. In fact, in the 80s was, I'm, I'm going to say 80s, was certainly the public consciousness about Maori concerns in relation to water. Um, and in law, particularly, we have the Waitangi Tribunal and its reports um, in relation to a lot of the discharges into water at the time. And that really was a revelation for a lot of people. And then when they made their way into court cases in the late 80s, particularly 1987, I was a law student then, um, and it was huge. And that's influenced her research interests today, drawing her to take a closer look at the Māori worldview of nature and guardianship of our waterways. The, the local um, river Iwi, uh, have a whakatauki that's been passed down from generations to illustrate um, their connection with the river. Ko te awa, ko te awa, ko I am the river and the river is me. That's the literal translation. It really, the, the non-literal just means the health and well-being of the people is intimately connected with the health and well-being of the river. We're on the banks of the Honganubi River or Te Awa Tupua on a gorgeous sunny warm day. Um, it's really still, beautiful, calm, clear water. Um, the paddle steamer just went by out with people for New Zealand's a... longest navigable river. It flows for 290 kilometres from Mount Tongariro down to the black sands of the Tasman Sea. In 2017, the Te Awa Wanganui River Claim Settlement Act became the first piece of legislation in the world to make a river a legal person, giving it the same rights, powers, duties and liabilities. Yeah, so what does legal personhood of a river actually mean on the day to day? So the concept of legal personality is not unusual at all. Um, we see that all the time. We do it every day for corporations. They're run by people, but the corporation itself is also a legal person. But we have people, we have directors and CEOs and all the office staff who then look after the interests of that corporation. So. How did it get to this point? Why was the Whanganui River given legal personhood? There's been a very long-running, uh, I want to say a battle, over the treatment of the river. And so Māori had that as a treaty grievance. Um, and this, as a result of a treaty settlement, they said, can we find a way to protect the river better, but so we can then be better guardians? So the treaty settlement has effectively upheld the rights of Māori to better protect the interests of the river um, and 
uh, that's what's been made in law, so they make it a legal person. Those rights and responsibilities of the river are carried out by its appointed guardians. And New Zealand is now leading the world on legal personality. It's like everyone and their mother around the world is interested in this and they've come here to study it. And for Catherine, it's the research work she enjoys the most. And the reason I say that is because what I like is what it represents in a change. Like our earth is going down the gurgler and our natural world is disappearing before our very eyes because of the way humans are using it. Right. Even though we don't mean to, you know, we, we, but we honestly don't know where the limit of that extra subdivision is, you know, um, or the extra trawl of fish or the extra bushfire, <laughs> you know, whether it's on purpose or accident. We don't know where the limits are and we keep finding we're going over them. Um, we have to have a different way of relating to it. We really do. Or it just it will disappear. There's lots of changes we could do within our existing mindset, but I think it's much more fundamental and more effective if we also change a mindset. And that's what I really like about the legal personality is because they're, well, they weren't environmental movements, they're treaty grievance resolutions for a start. So they're, it's, um, we're respecting a human right to have a different cosmology, to see Earth as your ancestor and us as guardians of it. Um, for some reason, the water, the rivers, has hit a nerve around the world. And we've had now five rivers where they, in different places around the world, have been granted or argued for personality for some way or another, in some form or another. I don't know why water, but that river basins particularly and rivers have been less like the lifeblood you know, the, the veins of the earth. Um, so I love that side of things. So the Māori view of kaitiaki, right, and kaitiakitanga could make a real difference. I'm Teresa Cowie, and this is Water, a newsroom.co.nz podcast about the researchers devoting their lives to understanding and protecting it. Right now, I'm finding out from environmental law professor Catherine Irons what motivates her to advocate for our water and the communities it sustains. Tēnā koe, Catherine. Nei mai mai ki so here we are outside our Wari Nui. This is Matangi Rei. Matangi Rei was built in 1933, our Wari Nui. Come on inside. So Matangi Rei belongs to two iwi actually. We wakapapa to Naroru Kitai and to Ngāti Ruanui. So we sit in this special area where we overlap. Um, the boundary for Naroru goes from the Whanganui River to the Pātea River and here we are just on the banks of the Wenukura River. So here you'll see our tūpuna, our um, last chief here. Photos on the wall. Yeah. When yeah, Anne-Marie Broughton of Naroru found out a company was intending to mine iron ore sands from the seabed off the Taranaki coast neighbouring the iwi, she knew she had to do something but she needed help to mount a legal challenge. It seemed a big mountain to climb, and an expensive one, until someone put her in touch with Catherine. 
Catherine decided to use some research she'd already done in the area to help mana whenua with its case against the mining company. She wrote up some research she'd already done for the university into a weighty 67-page submission for the iwi to use pro bono. Everyone was just so wrapped. They couldn't believe that we could actually get this kind of support from you guys. Um, and, yeah, that was really cool. Mm. Well, you know, it also works the other way. We sit there in our offices and work on ideas a lot. And it's like, oh, my God, we've got real people with a real problem to solve. We were wrapped. Right. Yeah. So, actually, it was really quite exciting. Anne-Marie's marae has a long history of gathering kai from the nearby coast. And, without Catherine's help, that would have been put under threat. I always remember the stories from, from Mum around how they always had plenty to eat here. And one particular story I remember is, you know, Mum was raised during the Depression, so she used to always talk about all the hungry people that used to, you know, be around. And um, she used to always talk about the swaggies, and um, the swaggies were people that just roamed the roads and just lived on the side of the road and, and lived on whatever they could either gather or, or get from people. And Mum always said that they always had swaggies calling into this marae and they always got fed because there was always plenty of kai from the river, from the sea, from their gardens and everything. So... Um, and every summer, um, the, the marae would move down to the coast and they had a summer camp down there. And mum used to talk about how they'd get their horse and, um, and carts and they'd load everything up onto the horse and carts and cart everything down to the beach and they'd set up down there and they'd live down there. And, you know, summertime was their time to gather all their, their kai and dry the, the fish and the shark and all that sort of thing and, you know, stock the pātaka. So um, it was such an, you know, an important part of sustaining our people to have access to the sea and to be able to fish and to the river. So when uh, we got notification that they wanted to mine our seabeds, it was like, oh, that's crazy, you know, why would you want to do that? As the sun begins setting, Anne-Marie and Catherine head from the Marae to the coast. To this coast line up here, all well, apart from further down near Whanganui, um, yeah, Castle Cliff. And it's where, it's where a really are. beautiful. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's cliff. stunning. We're up here on the cliff above yeah. this beautiful you West look, Coast beach. Well, rolling especially away. with the sun setting, everything's glistening silver. You know that silvery grey, tealy, merging into tealy colour. Um, What's it like to yeah. actually come here with Anne Marie yeah. and, and sort of see? See it for yourself. Well, Take yourself away yes. from that wood panelled <laughs> office. Oh, I know. And Look, then out here. Oh, it's perfect. Uh, it's great. I tell you what, the f maybe this is a bit silly. The very first thing I thought of when after I looked at the beach and I said, "Oh, I wonder where the twelve mile limit is." <laughs> yeah. Marie, what's it like for you to be able to bring Catherine here and actually show her what she's been working toward? Yeah, it's really neat actually because you know we we, we sort of get off the paper, off yeah. the, um, the screens, out of the 
um, the, the, the hearings room, and this is what it's all about. It's about what you can see and what you can feel. And, you know, I know that you um, inherently, you know, when I approached you to do this work, because you care, you just care about um, the environment that, you know, you jumped in to offer. And, and, and why wouldn't you care, you know? This is, this is what we're fighting for. Of course you want to fight to protect it. For Catherine, as a teacher, it's important to make the law real for her students and to drive it home to them that they are the future decision makers who will be able to make a difference. Just as an example, in 2018 we had 31.5 million litres exported, now 118 million litres exported. It's a huge jump and most of that is new take, it's not just reprioritising the domestic bottling. So we've got a huge jump in bottling and export. Today, after a lecture about the legality of consents for bottling drinking water, Catherine's brought a group of students to the Hutt River. Pat, the water bottling proposal, can you tell us whereabouts it is in relation to the Hutt River? There, there is a, a lake underneath us here. Sitting under a willow tree by the river, they're hearing from Pat Van Berkel from the Friends of the Hutt River, who's advocating for its protection from water bottling. There's the old Coca-Cola bottling plant. Hi, my name's Georgia. I'm a fifth-year law student at uh, Victoria Wellington University. Georgia plans on working in environmental law in the future. But what of Catherine's teaching does she think will stay with her as she makes her way out into the workforce? I think even just coming to things like this, getting involved, going down to the ground, seeing what's going on, not getting so removed from... Because law school is all theoretical and it is all arguing words and big ideas and you forget that in the end of the day it's real people and it's, it, yeah, real problems and whether you expect family law, it's people's families getting torn apart, it's criminal law, you know, it's people's lives getting ripped apart by crime. It's important not to get disconnected from that reality as a lawyer or a law student. But more than that, Catherine is teaching her students they need to be prepared to get out and shake things up. Sometimes as an individual you don't realise how much power your voice, like one person's voice has, but whether you vote or whether you're participating in climate marches, um, numbers do matter. I mean, even when you're... Uh, I teach people about protest in class because I do think basically we have to throw a spoke in the wheels of the juggernaut to slow it down if we're going to avert, you know, the current courses that we're on. Um, and so, yeah, chain yourself to a gate, even if it just slows it down and gets some attention. Back in the lecture theatre, that chaining yourself up and chanting is known by the more refined term of... Remember those alternative solutions? We need a much broader range. The all these alternative solutions we looked at last week, we're going to need different thinking about this, different ways of relating to the environment, but I also think we're still going to need all that protest. Why are they going to get these things through? They're going to get these things through if people demand them, right? And you actually, people have to be much more vocal about what's necessary or else we're not going to get any of them, right? Because they do, the politicians 
want to be re-elected, their jobs depend on doing what people want them to do. So you have to make them want that. Make them think you want them to do that. What are your hopes for the people of New Zealand's relationship with water? My biggest hope for our relationship is for nature in general, including water, and that's to realise how much a part of nature we are and dependent on it. We are not masters and, you know, controllers of the universe. Um, and it gives us more of... And I hope that, I, that they realise our relationship is one of responsibility. And so I really like the Māori term, the kaitiaki of it. It becomes a duty, it's not a right, it's not a right of nature to be looked after, for example, it's a duty of ours to do it properly. And it becomes part of who we are, and you know, our mana, our prestige, our authority is, is, goes on how well we uphold those responsibilities. So yeah, you, that's what I see as the ultimate goal of a relationship. I'm Teresa Cowie and that's Water with Professor Catherine Irons. Check out the other two episodes on newsroom.co.nz where I talk to freshwater ecologist Dr Mike Joy about his stealth missions into the bathrooms of small town cafes and service stations to test the tap water for cancer-causing nitrates. We want to run this one through and then let's see where the drinking water's at. Oh. Wow. Yeah, see, okay, so that's 6.42. Yeah, that's really high. And I find out from Antarctic researcher Professor Tim Nash about the science behind remapping the world's coastline as the ice cap hastens its melt. The ice shelves, actually, they don't just melt, they explode, they disintegrate. So we've seen ice shelves the size of uh, the Canterbury region disappear in two months, completely disintegrate. And then what happens? Because they're no longer holding back the ice on land, the ice on land flows into the ocean 10 times faster. And you'll be wanting more after that lot. There are also three documentaries in the series you can watch. You can find them at newsroom.co.nz. Water is a Magpie content creation production. Sound was put together by Andrew Dalziel at Valley Audio, with music by Mara TK. The iceberg sounds you heard were recorded by Mark Michel as part of Joseph Michael's installation, Antarctica While You Were Sleeping. It was produced and presented by me, Teresa Cowie. Water was funded by Irirangi Te Motu, New Zealand On Air.